Thanks, Barry. Let me add my word of welcome to you all. It is great to be gathered together. See you all after an extended period of leave for myself and for Beth, and of course after our somewhat elongated seven-day lockdown. It's truly good to be back amongst you, and it felt, thank you, it felt a little hollow to stand before a camera last week as my first message back amongst you. So I'm eagerly awaiting our time together this morning to be here in person. And if you have joined us in the last couple of months, my name's Ryan, I'm the senior pastor here, and I have been on leave. And then, of course, we've been separated due to COVID restrictions. Let me, as always, encourage all of you to keep your Bibles open there. We'll be using Philippians. We'll be jumping back into the psalm that Andrew read earlier and a couple of other surprises that I'll keep up my sleeve. It really is good to be back amongst you. This morning we're continuing in our series on Philippians, where we're considering joy. Joy found in knowing Christ, in trusting God, and in standing on the gospel. Joy in all circumstances, whatever befalls us. And this morning we're particularly considering joy in death. And at the same time, we'll be considering joy in life, since that is what Paul does. Now, as we've mentioned a few times already in this series, and as we're going to continue mentioning throughout, I'd like to remind you that joy is something much deeper than happiness. Happiness is that circumstantial feeling that comes and goes. Joy, Christian joy is a fruit of the Spirit, deeply embedded in the soul of the believer, that stems from the hope, from the certainty of the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Last week we saw that that Christian joy, that deep-seated, immovable joy, bolstered Paul's faith, despite his dire worldly circumstance, despite being in a situation in which no one could find happiness, imprisonment, isolation, suffering. Paul's joy remained firm. It gave him strength in the moment. Today we're going to see that the hope of the gospel, the joy that comes in knowing Christ, not only sustains us in the moment, but also assures us of the future. Let's look at this confident future hope that Paul expresses. And it begins there in verse 18 where he declares, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, not just in his current circumstances. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Now remember, friends, Paul has just declared the joy that he has in suffering, and he has urged the Philippians to be joyful in their circumstance also. And now he says, yes, And I will continue to rejoice. 
This is the shift that Paul makes from looking around the immediate circumstance he finds himself into to looking down the future as it may come to pass. And Paul still anticipates that whatever that future holds, it will continue to be a time of rejoicing. Not because circumstances are necessarily going to pick up. Not because happiness is suddenly going to flood in. Why does Paul look to the future with this same confidence of joy? Well, he answers the question himself. He says, because I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, the word here rendered deliverance has quite a variety of meanings. It could could equally be translated as salvation or vindication. It possibly includes Paul's anticipation of a worldly deliverance that is being set free from prison, being found not guilty at his trial. But more ultimately, its focus is on the eternal. Paul is saying that his present circumstance are in some way under God, bolstered by the prayers of his church, working towards his ultimate deliverance, his eternal salvation, the ultimate vindication that he will one day stand before a holy God and because of Christ be found worthy and welcomed. Paul is saying that regardless of what is around me now, I know that since you are praying for me, and since God's Spirit is in me, since I myself have been anchored to the immovable foundation of Christ Jesus himself, I know that whatever happens now, and whatever happens in the future, it will turn out for my deliverance. It will work out. For my salvation, I will be vindicated because of God. Paul will write elsewhere that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And here in Philippians, we see that Paul truly believes that, not just for others, but for himself also. This is no flippant platitude designed to appease the Philippians' anxiety. That's not the Australian, ah, she'll be right, mate, it'll all work out in the end. No, this is an unshakable truth. And it's the source of that deep spiritual joy that Paul so evidently had in his life. Whatever may come, it will work out for my deliverance, says Paul. Friends, Paul knows the truth of the psalm that Andrew read for us earlier. If you have your Bibles, please jump back into Psalm 34. Where David, in a most desperate time in his life, penned this song of praise to God. And I'm going to read those first seven verses again. See if you can pick up for yourself the language that Paul draws on here in Philippians 1. David wrote in Psalm 34, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. 
Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Friends, do you see how Paul echoes this psalm in his own encouragement to the Philippians? He says, as we seek the Lord in prayer, as you pray for me, says Paul. The Lord answered me, wrote David. And Paul says, he is with me in his spirit. David said, they are delivered, just as Paul says, it will work out for my deliverance. And I will not be ashamed, says Paul, just as David reminds us that those who glorify and trust in the Lord will never have shame covering them. And God will be magnified. David says that the Lord will be glorified in this great work. So Paul says, Christ will be magnified in his life or indeed in his death. So rejoice, says Paul, now in our present circumstances and continue to rejoice as you look to the future because it's all going to work out for Christ's glory. And if you're found in him, it's going to work out for your own deliverance as well. So confident is this that Paul can declare whether by life or by death he has this certain gospel hope. Whether by life or by death, writes Paul back in Philippians 1. I will rejoice in death or in life. There will be joy. Now, I want you to remember, friends, that those are very real possibilities for Paul. Our society collectively at the moment has a perhaps greater fascination and awareness of death than it has for quite some time. Normally, we hide death away and don't like to consider it. It's been a little bit more brought to the foreground in our day and age. But for Paul, sitting there in a Roman prison or under Roman house arrest, chained day by day to guards or to beds, awaiting trial before Caesar who could literally grant him life or death, these are the two very real possibilities that lie before Paul. And he doesn't know which is God's plan. He doesn't know. But so confident is Paul in the sovereignty and good purposes of God that he can confidently declare that he will find joy in either life or death. This knowledge that God's goodness and sovereignty is the rudder that steers Paul's ship, is the rudder that steadies the Christian life, regardless of pleasures or trials or struggles. Knowing God's goodness, knowing God's power, gives us true hope, whatever may come in the future. In a children's book 
called The Moon is Always Round, written by a pastor named Jonathan Gibson. He uses the illustration of the moon to help explain to children that God is always good. It's a great little image to have in our own minds. You see, some nights we look up at the moon and we see only a crescent or a sliver. Some nights the moon is obscured. We see none of it. At other times it shines in all its fullness. But whatever the circumstance may be, we know that the moon is always round. So it is, Paul would say, when it comes to God's goodness and sovereignty. Sometimes we see it clear as day. We know exactly what God is doing in our life or the life of those around us. Sometimes it's obscured by trials, suffering, pain, our own sin. Sometimes we get but a glimpse of what is going on. But just as the moon is always round, so God is always good, whether we have eyes to see it or not. And when we grasp that God is always good and is always working his good purposes out in the life of the believer, the ultimate realization of that is the believer's acceptance that even their death is in God's hand and they need not fear. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, writing to another church of his beloved brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 50, he says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable in inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul continues, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, just as he wrote to the Philippians, urges the brothers and sisters and urges us here today to recognize that because of Christ's own death, because of his resurrection which pays the way for our resurrection, death truly has been defeated and now merely functions as a part of God's plan of salvation. And so we can embrace it with joy. When we reach this realization, when we have this view of God's goodness, we can understand how Paul could write back in Philippians, picking up from verse 21. 
Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am going to go on living in the body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two, between death and life. He says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul weighing up the two futures that lay before him, death or life, considers death the preferred option. Now understand, Paul is not suicidal. He's not about to take his life, nor would he encourage anyone to pursue that line of thinking. The taking of human life is always wrong, be it that of another or that of one's self. But Paul expresses a willingness and an eagerness to embrace death should it be God's plan. Because it will be better for him to depart and be with Christ. So confident is Paul in God's goodness, in God's plan, in the knowledge that one day he will stand holy before Jesus, that he can see death as the better option. But notice there Paul makes the point that either way, in death or in life, God will continue to be at work and God will continue to be glorified in Paul. We're going to look now at those two options. How can death bring joy for the Christian? How can death be the preferred option and the hope of the Christian life? And equally, in life, how can we continue to live as those who bring glory to God? And friends, I've broken this down into two different, two different sentences that you know well here at NBC. For one, it is about knowing Jesus. And for the other, it is about making him known. Paul writes about death. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Friends, the way to have joy in the face of death is to recognize that what is beyond this mortal world is greater for the Christian. The Christian unlocks joy by binding themselves to Christ. We've looked at that already a number of times in this series. And the reason Paul can look at death with joy is that he realizes that in and through death, his binding to Christ will be amplified all the more. That death is simply the path to his greatest desire. Knowing Christ in all his fullness and glory. Paul sees Christ now only dimly. True, the dimness of Christ is still glorious beyond any worldly thing. The knowledge of Christ is life-altering beyond anything else we will ever know. But the fullness of Christ is not yet seen. And only through death or through Christ's return will the believer come to know it. That's why Paul can write later in chapter 3 of Philippians, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his suffering, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Paul realizes that death 
in a mortal sense, is ultimately a path to a new and fuller life, to the fullest revelation of Christ's glory, to a new heaven and a new earth, perfect, sinless, with an eternal access to the God who loved and saved him. And so death can indeed be seen and welcomed as part of God's sovereign plan. However, there as Paul wrote that letter, as he no doubt had ample time to ponder the mysteries of death and life, Paul discerns under God that what is best is that he remain not embraced by death and the realization of Christ's full glory, but rather that he remain as God has more intended for his worldly life and ministry. Back in Philippians 1 at verse 24, Paul says, It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul, looking down those future options, Imagining himself standing at trial before Caesar, trusts that for now at least, God's choice will be for Paul to continue in life. Not to grant him the desire of death and to know Christ all the more for himself, but rather that he may remain with the Philippians and with other churches and with non-believers so that he might continue the gospel work so that the joy they experience in Christ might increase. And Paul recognizes that that would be best and is eager to undertake that ministry should it be God's will for him. As such, Paul urges that his life, and indeed the Philippians' life, and I would argue our life, be spent in the glorifying of God. And this is achieved not just in knowing Jesus, but in making him known. Paul, again, here in Philippians, finds joy in the knowledge that should he continue living, God will continue using him for fruitful service. If I am to go on living in the body, it will mean fruitful labor for me, Paul says in verse 22. And he urges that we would have the same desire in our lives, that we too might know the joy of the gospel and the joy of serving God in sharing that gospel. He says so in verse 27. 
Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Occasionally, here in the pulpit, one of the preachers will speak a little about the original language in which our Bibles were written. Of course, the New Testament, written primarily in Greek. Occasionally, we find words that are a little hard to translate. And here we have another one of those. I'm not going to try and pronounce the original Greek, but let me assure you, the word translated into our English, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, is just one word in the original Greek. It's been translated like this because we don't have an English word that is its equivalent. But essentially what is written there in the original text is the verb of the word citizen. If we were to coin an English word, it would be something along the lines of citizenize. Live as a citizen of. And Paul chooses this word intentionally because he is writing to a church at Philippi which is filled with Roman citizens, Gentile converts to the gospel, most of whom would have served in Rome's armies. Friends, as a citizen, you have rights and privileges, and you also have expectations and requirements. For those at Philippi, there was the confidence that came in being Roman. It afforded them a particular status, a capacity to earn money where others couldn't. It afforded them privileges of being the upper class. But it also came with, it, with its expectations, that they would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of being called Roman. That they would serve their Caesar and their land in some capacity, and many of those would have been military services. So it is here as Australian citizens, which I trust most of us are. We are afforded the right to health care, to own land, to travel under the Australian passport, to return home. There are expectations that we conduct ourselves abroad as Australians. There are unwritten expectations that we embrace qualities like mateship. Paul says to those in Philippi, you are gospel citizens. No longer think of yourself as Romans. As you live here in this world, waiting the day where Christ takes you in death, where he welcomes you to your ultimate heavenly home, know that here you are gospel citizens. You have privileges and you have expectations. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, again writing, expands on this idea. If you have your Bibles, please flick across to Ephesians chapter 2. You're going back just a couple of pages from Philippians. Ephesians 2 from verse 12. Paul writes, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Paul, as he did to the Ephesians, says to the Philippians, You are gospel citizens. Your citizenship is in heaven because of what Christ has done in you. And there are benefits. Salvation. The Spirit of God dwelling in your hearts. The security of eternity. The knowledge and love of Christ. The unity with brothers and sisters all around the globe. But there are expectations as well. That you will join the gospel cause. That in your conduct, both in word and deed, you will radiate the gospel in your life. That you will be found Worthy of the gospel by which you have been saved. Paul urges the Philippians to live such lives. Whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Citizenize as gospel people. As you await that time where Christ welcomes you home through the passage of death. As long as you live here, you have a task, and that task is to continue the gospel work, sharing Christ with those around, building up that temple of God, winning more in, just as you yourself were brought in by the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul has confidence in the Philippians and no doubt in you, that the gospel will do its work because it is not contingent on you. It is locked up securely in what Christ has done and in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And so Paul says, we can trust and we can be joyful in whatever circumstances and whatever lies ahead, up to and including death. Find joy and live as gospel citizens. Brothers and sisters, know Jesus deeply, intimately for yourself. Eagerly await the day where you will know him all the more. And as you wait, make him known. Here, in your homes, in our community and around our world, let us be those who know Jesus and make him known. Would you pray with me that that might be the case? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, 
All too often we think of death as something to be feared, as a cause for grief and anxiety. And indeed, Lord, we know that in this fallen and broken world, death can indeed bring grief and pain and anguish. But here Paul reminds us that for the Christian, death is also the path to knowing Christ more fully, to seeing his glory more majestically, and to an eternity in your presence. And so he can find joy in the uncertainty of what lies ahead. Lord, may you grant us that same knowledge and love of Christ, that same confidence in your sovereignty and in your goodness, that we too would not fear death, but trust that if it be your will for us, then it is indeed what is best. But Lord, as we also continue in life, as you call us to live out our days here in this world, remind us that we are in fact gospel citizens, that our citizenship is in heaven. And Lord, help us to live as those who grasp hold of that truth. Help us to make Jesus known in our families, in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our community and in our world. Lord, may all people come to know Christ. We ask this not simply for our sakes, but that you might truly be glorified as you deserve. And we pray it in the most precious name of Jesus. Amen.